The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would please, to uh, 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1 together. Amen. We love the word. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 14 together, and you'll notice that twice in those 14 verses, we will see John refer to those whom he is writing as little children. Uh, I'm just going to ask you to let your heart be softened and be opened to what God the Father will communicate to us through these scriptures today. It's, uh, I've already mentioned it, but to me, somebody that approaches me with a loving fatherly tone, somebody that I am very confident that they care about me, if they need to come and correct me or challenge me, it's a lot easier to swallow that pill. You know what I'm talking about? If you think somebody's coming to you and they're just saying what they're saying because they've got a superiority complex or you know, they just, they're reveling in the fact that they get to correct you, it's kind of hard to receive that even if it's truth. Is that right or wrong? We should probably be humble and receive it anyway, but that's not the point. The point is John comes at us with such a loving and fatherly tone that it should disarm us. It should cause us to be open to what it is uh, he's going to have to say. And because John opens with a loving, fatherly tone, uh, we're also going to see that then, like a dad who really loves his kids, uh, he gets the hammer out. And he's going to start pounding away and chipping off the hard-heartedness and rebellion that constantly seeks to encase our hearts. We are always in a battle against those two things. Hard-heartedness and rebellion will always try to creep in and come and lead us astray from the God who really does love us. And John's going to deal with us today. Um, I just want to tell you that <clears throat> our time in God's Word today is going to require humility from you. And I'm warning you now because I love you. I want you to be prepared for that. Uh, the, the reality is if, if ever the Word of God is taught rightly and read uh, and you're offended, it's probably not the Word of God that's uh, gone astray or is untrue. There's probably something in the grid of our understanding and perception that's, that's been skewed. We should submit then to what it is the Word of God would teach us. So um, let's go ahead and read these verses, okay? So I'm going to start in verse 1, chapter 2 of First John. <clears throat> My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We're going to start back at verse 1, and we'll take this verse by verse. Uh, Verse 1 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We are told that he is writing these things so that we may not sin. I think all too often we read verses like uh, chapter 1, verse 8 here in 1 John that says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Um, So pretty much what that's telling us is clearly even, even those of us that have come to knowledge and faith in Christ. We've been made new creatures and we're on a process of sanctification by his grace and by his power that we still will stumble in sin. We see verses like that. We see verses like Romans 3.23 that uh, tell us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, And because these verses tell us, because they assure us that as a result of our weakness in the flesh, we will sin, I want to make sure that we understand that that doesn't mean it doesn't matter if we sin. I think sometimes we can get to believe that, that because the Bible tells us we will sin, that it it doesn't matter if we do sin, and that's not true. All of what John has written right here, he tells us, he's giving us the reason, he's good at that, giving us the reason for uh, what it is he's written is so that, he says, so that you may not sin. What he's written is not to encourage us to have a lackadaisical or apathetic attitude, kind of a flippant, it doesn't really matter attitude towards sin. Assuring us in in 1 John chapter 1 that confessing our sins, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive those sins, that that's not supposed to lead us to be less vigilant to stand guard against temptation. It should actually consider us, or, or it should push us to be more so. The incredible love and mercy offered to us in the gospel, should cause an ever-growing desire to obey and serve our benevolent master. That should be what? Understanding that though we will sin, we will be forgiven. It should cause us to want to obey more, not obey less. And when we understand what the gospel is, it it should cause a desire out of love for the author of that gospel to obey him. And when, when I say gospel, I mean the the good news about Jesus that must be preceded with the bad news. We are all separated from God by sin. None of us is perfect. The Bible tells us that God is perfect, completely. And that that is much like light, and it cannot be mixed with darkness. And so our sin separates us from God. That's really, really bad news. And if that's all we knew, that all of us, because of sin... See, Romans 3.23 tells us, all of us will sin and fall short of the glory of God. And sometimes we think that means, well... If all of us are going to sin, it doesn't matter that much. No, it it matters drastically because that separates us from relationship with the eternal God and Father who loves us and who made us. It's a big deal, and it's really bad news, but that's what makes the good news so sweet. The good news is Jesus came, lived the perfect life that none of us could live. And because of that, Jesus saw fit to count his sacrifice, him dying in our stead, him suffering and taking the pouring out of the wrath of God in our place, that God will look at what he did and count us as righteous. That's the gospel. He died in our place for our sins. Three days later, rose from the grave, triumphant 
over death, hell, and sin, proving that all that he said was true. That's the gospel. And when, when you understand that, when, it, when that message penetrates your heart, it doesn't make you want to push the limits of the grace that the gospel provides. It makes you want to run as far as you can from that line. It makes you want to obey a God that, that, that's that good. Amen? Amen. Amen. The other thing we need to understand is though we have the beauty of the gospel, sin still always has consequences. Sin always brings with it pain and suffering. Sin always grieves the heart of our Heavenly Father. If the doctrines of grace and the assurance of salvation through Christ has brought you to a place of less concern about obeying God's commandments, then something's gone horribly wrong. Consider Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26. Here's what that says. If we go on sinning willfully after having received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer left a sacrifice for your sins. Are you hearing what I'm talking about? But a terrible expectation of the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. And it goes on to say in, in the Old Testament that somebody would die if they set aside the law of Moses on the testimony of two or three witnesses. It goes on to say how much more? Those who sin willfully after having received the beauty of the gospel... How much more they who have treated the blood of the covenant, the blood that washed them clean, as a common thing. They treated it as unclean. Those who have trampled underfoot. This is the language Hebrews uses to describe those who sin willfully after knowing better. Who just keep on going, testing grace, thinking that because grace is there, it doesn't matter. Trample underfoot the Son of God. That's what that kind of behavior does. And it insults the Spirit of grace. That's the language that the scriptures use to describe that. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, and here's the thing. Some of you will try to cover your ears as those verses are spoken, and you'll chant Romans 8 to yourself that says that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Listen, I like that verse a whole lot. One of my favorites. It's great. I'm glad it's there, and I'm glad it's true. But here's the deal. I I'm telling you right now. Whether you believe that through willful rebellion and the searing of your conscience you can fall away from relationship with God, or you believe that that kind of behavior only reveals that you were never in relationship to begin with, it's a mute point. Because the end result is the same whichever way you believe about that. You hear what I'm talking about? Those who continue sinning willfully and thinking it doesn't matter believe you can premeditate your treachery against his sovereign rule as if he cannot see your evil intentions. You got another thing coming. That's not how it works. Grace is not a game to be played. It's a gift to be grateful for. Can I say that again? Because you should think about it this week. Grace is not a game to be played. It's a gift to be grateful for. And it should cause a response of obedience. Grace should not cause us to be sloppy. It should not cause us to be lax should cause us to push ever harder and ever closer to being like Jesus. If you've been in rebellion, and if God has been calling you by his spirit to stop sinning, and you know it, let me call out to you as somebody that loves you. Stop. Today. You know how this service goes. We will, we will end this service by taking the Lord's Supper together. Today, repent. Today, leave that willful rebellion at his feet. Because even if that's where you've been, here's what's amazing. Even if you've been that guy or that girl that's been trampling underfoot the Son of God with your rebellion, even if you're that one that's been insulting the Spirit of grace, God today will still re receive 
your true repentance. If you understand the depth of your treachery and you will come to him broken and humble today, though that's been you, though your rebellion has been complete, he will receive you just like the father did the prodigal son. Wow. Again, that, that makes me want to run home and love him more and serve him. Lord, what else can I do to respond to that? Because I'm undeserving of it. And we all, at varying degrees, struggle and strive against that temptation to rebel. Some of you today, you know that I'm talking to you, though. You know that you've been in open rebellion, whether it's only been in your thoughts or not. Stop it. Today, I love you. Don't be in the category. Don't be somebody that treats the blood of the covenant as an unclean thing. Don't be somebody that's insulting the spirit of grace because somebody taught you it, doesn't, you know, it just doesn't matter. If, look, Paul is clear. It doesn't matter who you go to. Should we sin all the more that God is glorified because grace gets to operate? May it never be. He's adamant about it. It matters when we sin, and there are consequences. There's a price to be paid always. Is forgiveness there? Is mercy there? Will God help us? To be restored when those consequences of sin come to roost? Yes, and he does. Exhibit A is standing before you. <laughs> a dirty, vile sinner redeemed by, by God on a constant path, slipping and falling, tripping, yes. But when I come to realize it, running, running, running to his feet in repentance, receiving grace, and because of being able to experience that process, I want, I want to serve him better. I want to obey him better. I don't want to grieve the heart of God because I love him. I love him. <laughs> I love him. Do you love him? I love him. The gospel, man, it's, I, I can't help it. He's been too good to me. This is the beauty of the promise. When we understand the depth of our treason and we truly come to repent, we realize that God's grace is not only given to save us, but it is given to empower us to be holy, to walk in light, and to be continually pressing toward the mark of walking and talking and thinking and acting like G King Jesus. Grace is not just for the initial salvation of a person, but God's grace is given to us for the continual empowering of walking this life out. God doesn't call us to holiness and to being like Jesus and say, just do your best on your own. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so though it is inevitable at some point you may trip and fall, that doesn't mean we just settle into that and settle for that. Amen? That was just verse one. We will make it. I hope you ate a granola bar before you came in here. <clears throat> Whoever was going home to watch the Star Wars trilogy, you might have to let that bleed in tomorrow. Um, verse two. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Uh, I want to back up even and look at another part. We, we didn't get past the point that John wrote this so that we may not sin. That's all we've been talking about so far, so I think we've made that clear. But let's look at the rest of verse 1 as well. That, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So even after revealing the intention of his writing so that we may not sin, he makes that clear don't just settle into the fact that you're going to sin and think that it doesn't matter. Uh, much of what the first chapter is about is calling us to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then, and then he, he makes plain, starting chapter 2, I'm writing this so that you may not sin. Yes, I want to encourage you that forgiveness is there, but, but I, I want you not to sin. 
right? This is, this is John's plea. Because he has that fatherly love for his people and he understands that sin comes with consequences. Do you believe that? Do you understand that it, nev- it, it never just goes a net neutral, man? When you disobey God, somebody or something gets hurt. It's normally you and people around you. A price gets paid. It doesn't mean that, that grace is overridden and the blood of Christ doesn't still cover your sins, but it doesn't, it doesn't also mean that pain is completely avoided. Every time we stray from God's loving commands, it hurts. And John's pleading with his people, don't, don't do it. I love you. I don't want to see you get hurt. Right? And so uh, we see here the beginning, the, the second part of verse 1, it says... Um, that even after revealing his intention, that uh, his, his hope is that we wouldn't sin, he assures us again that when we stumble and fall during our race, that King Jesus is our defense attorney. And I'm real, real thankful that he's working pro bono, because I'll tell you right now, I couldn't afford a lawyer good enough to get me off the hook. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm real glad I didn't have to work to get Jesus on my team. To get Jesus to stand in for me and stand up for me. I couldn't have worked off the load of debt that I had accrued by my sin. Never, ever. I know that. Couldn't get an attorney good enough to get me out of all I'd done and thought and said that was contrary to the loving commands of God. So I'm, I'm glad that Jesus steps in for free. When Satan the accuser comes as a prosecutor and he begins to lay out the evidence against us, Jesus doesn't use manipulation or trickery or technicality to try to create doubt about our guilt. That's oftentimes what a defense attorney will do. They, they try to use some little technicality or hinge the whole argument on, on something that really doesn't matter and try to get, get so a little bit of doubt about somebody's guilt to get them off the hook. That's not what Jesus does. He stands and he admits that we are guilty and that we are deserving of the full weight and wrath of the court all that the court could pull out on us, all that the judge could give us. He admits we're guilty. But then he's allowed to approach the bench because the judge is his dad. And he says, Father, they are guilty, but I'm innocent. And holding up his nail-scarred hands, he says, I already took the punishment they should receive. The gavel drops, and so does the case. And we're called innocent, not because of what we did, nothing we could have done, but because of what Jesus did. Hallelujah. Are you happy about that today? My God, I'm happy to be a Christian. I'm real happy King Jesus sits right right next to me in the courtroom, because if it wasn't for him, you might as well lock me up and throw away the key. Couldn't get out of it. I'd be stuck. Real thankful for Jesus. Thankful he's my advocate. Uh, Verses 3 through 6, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. Here we're given a litmus test for our salvation. We're given a gauge to know. Apparently, repeating a prayer after someone, whether you understand its implications or not, does not mean we have eternal life. There must be more to it than that. And I don't mean to be harsh. And I don't mean to be judgmental against something that maybe you've been taught, but that's not the whole story, clearly. 
Because John is clear here. For you to say that you know him, but refuse to obey him, you are a liar. He doesn't mince words. So I told you he's going to get the hammer out and he's going to work on us today. And let us not be like an anvil. Let us be like a soft lump of clay being molded by the strikes of this hammer, of this writer, of the gospel that loves us. Let us be formed by it. How can we tell if we've been transformed and made new by the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we know that we haven't been given a thin veneer of behavior modification and morality through positive peer pressure or some other force? How do we know? How can we be sure? How can we be sure we just didn't get around a bunch of other people that are Christians and started to do what they do, but not really ever encountered the master himself? Here's how we'll know. We won't do it perfectly, but consistently, we will keep his commands and we'll walk in the same manner as he walked. It all, always, every time comes back to Jesus. His life, his character, our call as Christians is to walk behind him. For his disciples, we follow him. We do what he did. We, said, we say what he said. We endeavor by the Holy Spirit to think what he would think in a given situation. That's the call of Christ. It's interesting, I think, that verse 5 tells us the love of God is clearly doing its perfect work in the obedient person. See, here's how this works. His love for us leads to our love for him. And sin loses its power and allure every time that happens. God loves us so good that we can't help but love him back. And when that is working properly, when the perfect love of God is in a man or woman, obedience flows from that. (laughs) Because there's trust in that. There's no longer this resistance and resentment to commands there is a desire to know, what is it, O oh Lord, that you, would, that you would give me to do or not to do? I anxiously await your instruction because I trust you and I believe that you love me and I will do what you say with joy, with a smile on my face. Not begrudgingly, not like some of you used to get sent to your room by your parents clean your room, you know, and you're mouthing off just quiet enough that they couldn't hear when you turned around, right? We're, we don't want to be like that. That's not, that's not the kind of children God's looking for. I'm going to smile and skip. God tells me to go clean my room, I want to sing a song all the way there. And while I'm doing it. (laughs) Amen? Somebody just got convicted about what their room looks like at home, didn't they? A full-grown adult. That's all right. Lord, deal with that too. Amen. The love of God causes us to obey him. Verses 7 and 8. Let's read those. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Anybody confused? If you're paying attention, you should be. Uh, This seems like John may have been a a little confused himself. Um, A plain reading can sound like this is what he's saying. It it, it seems like a set of contradictory statements. It seems like he's saying, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. And then he turns around and says, well, I am writing a new commandment to you. Which is it, John? Did you take communion too many times and got a little buzz and then decide to sit down and write some scripture? No, it's not what happened. Right? So when we see, let me teach you something specifically here about Bible interpretation. 
when you, with your limited scope of perspective, come to something in the Scriptures that seems to be contradictory, you can just safely assume it's not. The gap is not in the Scriptures. God is the editor here. Okay, he's perfect. So the gap in understanding is with us. And so that's when we, we the, I mean, the best way to understand Scripture, I can't remember who said it, uh, but anybody that understands the way God works, the best way to understand Scripture is to meditate on it and pray and ask God to help you understand it. The Holy Spirit is the best teacher. But there's tools like commentaries and other things, men that have gone before us that <clears throat> can help us understand these things. So we have this seemingly contradictory statement, but here's what he is saying. Here's why this makes perfect sense. What he's saying is that they have had the commandment since the time of Moses. Since the time of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we've had this commandment, this, this grand commandment to obey God and to love him and to love your neighbor. Uh, and so they have heard this before. This is not new informationally to them. They have heard those words put in a sentence together. It's not a brand new commandment from that standpoint. However, the commandment is new because the true light of the life death, and resurrection of Jesus gave us the opportunity for the first time to really realize the depth of the commandment. See, because they had heard for thousands of years, obey God, love him with all your heart, first and foremost, and love your neighbors yourself. This is really important. You need to hold this high. You need to keep this in the forefront of your mind at all times. This is what God, of all things, wants you to understand. But they could never totally get what that meant until they were able to see the perfect come and walk that commandment out. They could only guess. They were still in darkness and shadow. They heard the commandment, but they couldn't fully grasp it until they saw Jesus come, live a life of selfless sacrifice, healing and feeding and loving those who couldn't. And then the ultimate, the ultimate act of selflessness and sacrifice. They got to see light shined on what it really means to love when the cross was walked out by our Savior. He's saying that old commandment, it's really new because now you can get it. Now because of Jesus' finished work, it's like taking a, a, a beam of light and just shining it on what was hidden behind that, that commandment before. What we couldn't have possibly understood without the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So the commandment is old, but it is also new. John's not confused. Amen. Amen. The true light of Christ showed us that we couldn't get away with having generally positive feelings for someone and claim that we love them. Love requires selflessness and sacrifice. Like the snowman on Frozen so eloquently put it, love is putting someone else's needs before your own. It's very hard in everyday culture today to find something that even closely resembles what the scriptures define love to be. Needless to say, me and Lucy will be watching that movie quite a bit. If you're parents, man, please look for everyday opportunities to point to the gospel. Look for them all the time. Be intentional about it. Because the sooner your children grasp this beautiful truth, the sooner for them it, it goes from maybe a repetition that you teach them that they should love God, but then they when that light really goes on for them, the sooner we have somebody else that can be sharing and influencing people for the gospel. I don't just want your children to make it to heaven. I want your children to help us help others make it to heaven. Amen? You care about that? I care about that. That's why Kid City is not called 
you know, Kid City Daycare. It's called Kid City Discipleship. We're trying to make disciple makers back there. Okay, I don't know how long the Lord's going to wait to come and get us. Some days I'm like, please, <laughs> right now. Some days I look at our children. I look at the children running around this church, and I think, Lord, just give us a little time. Give us a little time with them. Let them get in the game. I want to see mine be able to have the joy of looking in the eyes of their friends and declaring the gospel and seeing someone go from darkness to light. Nevertheless, his will be done, right? Whatever it is, I'll be happy. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I think you could summarize those verses with a question. Are you void of deep, real, authentic, affectionate love for God's people? Then you're probably not one of God's people. There's a direct correlation drawn here that if, if you have love for the people of God, the God kind of love, the kind that the light of the life and death of Christ shined that brought us to understand, if you're willing to care less about you and more about them, uh, you're probably a child of God. If you have primarily disdain for God's people, if it's a struggle for you to be around them, uh, you may not be. Some of you may recoil at that. Some of you may have long lists of stories of ways that Christians have hurt you or done you wrong. Listen, I understand that. But the parable of the wicked servant is there for, for, for a real strong purpose and reason. And we all tend to be him. To be someone that has been forgiven a great debt but unwilling to forgive that debt of, for others. Grace doesn't just flow to us, it flows through us. It has to. If it's not flowing through us, it's not flowing to us. Look, look at the end of the Lord's Prayer, man. If you will not forgive others, I cannot forgive you. Is anybody in here doing so good on obedience that they can afford a few days or weeks or months without God's grace flowing to them? I'm not in that good of shape. <laughs> Walking, talking, being like Jesus. I want to be. Actually, I don't ever want to be to the point where I don't have to forgive because then I'm sinning in, in that and I've totally abandoned his cause. However, um, you get my point. Verses 12 through 14. Let's read those together. It says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I've written to you children because you know the father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. These verses here are some of why we have a core value here at Love City. The broad core value is that diversity is strength. We believe that a diverse group of people coming together by God's grace to do a mission is better than a group of people that all think and do and look and act the same. We believe diversity makes us stronger. Because you're going to be gifted in ways I'm not. 
And when you bring people together with a variance of gifts, what you get is a better equipped army to do a mission. You know, you send, you send a couple hundred, you know, people that all, all they can do is they're a mechanic. Well, great. All the vehicles on the trip, they're going to be in really good shape. But if nobody can cook, we're dead. <laughs> right? Right. Okay. <clears throat> and so these verses are some that cause us to have a core value of not only diversity is strength, but that we believe multi-generational diversity is really important. Um, in order to be effective at our mission, we need people in every stage of life. Uh, and oftentimes churches will target or, or just gear their ministry towards a specific um, kind of portion of, of a generational, uh, you know, an age group or, or whatever it is. And I just think that's really unwise. I think God is glorified when people of different ages that, let's, not, let, let's be honest, Satan has worked hard to drive wedges between generations, right? You've got people that are older looking at those that are younger, thinking most of them are lazy and useless at best. Uh, oftentimes you've got younger folks that because, you know, somebody that's older may not be quite as savvy with, you know, electronics or something digital that, that they're probably outdated and uh, don't have much to teach them. Both of those are very ignorant perspectives. And so we want to encourage the young to value and cherish the wisdom of the older. And we want the older to have a great passion for pouring that wisdom into the younger, thinking, having hope that it, it will reap something, that there will be fruitfulness from it. We need that working well in order to glorify God and to accomplish our mission. Um, so verse 12, so we'll, we'll see individually different groups um, spoken to. Um, and, and I just want to say that the, the reality is that these references to apparent age groups they're more a description of spiritual maturity than age because the reality is you could be 60 years old and be a baby Christian. Um, so the, really, I think some of the principles that will be talked about in these verses apply to even just biological age. However, I really think the, the focus here is on uh, spiritual maturity. Okay? Uh, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I think there's two things that we have to see from that. First of all, we, we can never, ever, 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 I said ever a bunch of times, you hear that? Ever lose the simple joy of salvation. And so he's telling the little ones, here's what you need to know today. You've been saved. And here's why. For his name's sake. Ultimately, ultimately, this whole deal's not about us. It's about his glory. God is glorified in the saving of his people. God is glorified in defeating sin on our behalf. God is glorified in taking those that were hopelessly lost, rebels and wretches, and making us his children. He's glorified in that. Amen. Verses 13 and 14. It says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. Uh, notice the repetition. Okay, this is not an accident, so we need to pay attention. Whenever we see in the scriptures something repeated, and some of this is verbatim, repeated twice, we need to understand, that, again, that's not, uh, you know, John didn't forget where he was at or get confused. He said it twice because he wanted us to pay attention. Um, 
So it says, uh, children, rejoice because your sins have been forgiven, and thus you may know the Father. And we should not lose this as we grow. So when he's addressing children, he's saying to them primarily, here's the message I want you to get. You've been saved. You've been saved, and you should have joy in that. And here's the thing, though, as we go on, as we go through and become young men, and then fathers in the faith, uh, we should not ever lose that pure joy of salvation. We should build upon it. We should grow in it. Here's what John has to say to the young men. He says, you've overcome the evil one. He says that to them twice, and he, and he says it's because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. And then he says again, you've overcome the evil one. The young men are twice reminded, twice, that they have overcome the evil one, and we know that this is done because of revelation by the blood of the Lamb. We know that nobody is by themselves going to take on the enemies of, of sin and death and going to win. They need the power of Christ and his, his uh, death and resurrection but what John is doing here, and, and, and he's, it almost seems like he's kind of, he's puffing these young men up a little bit, and he's saying, you know, you guys are strong, and you've overcome the evil one, and it's by God's grace. Um, he's stirring and provoking the all-too-often dormant power found in those who are young of age and young in the Lord. There is a power and a strength in those that are young in age and young in the Lord that often just lays dormant. Um, oftentimes there's not room made for it. Sometimes uh, people that are young in the Lord, maybe not just recently saved, but they've been doing it a little bit. They, they get their eyes pulled to the right and to the left by distraction, but there is an incredible power and strength in those who are young. And, and especially, I, I, I know that God is calling specifically here uh, to young women, uh, young men, young women of course as well, but young men specifically. Um, I would call your attention to an Old Testament story when the armies of God cowered before the insolent curses of that heathen giant Goliath. It took a young man to rise up and declare who the one true living God was and prove to everyone present that day that that God was not to be trifled with. You know, there was a bunch of full-grown men there standing there shaking in their armor as Goliath bellowed, bellowed his curses across to God's people. Nobody stood up. Nobody said anything. Here comes the shepherd boy, but a teenager. And, and some of it, <clears throat> let me just speak to some of you young men. You know, <clears throat> even in the way our brain develops, it's just, it's, it's, so, it's so cool to understand things about biology and anatomy and, and the way that we develop um, and see part of what God is doing and how it's confirmed in the scriptures. You ever just understand that like a, a teenage boy will do things that no other humans will do? <laughs> Have you known this to be true or observed it of yourself? I, I am vibrantly aware that earlier in my life, uh, for some reason, there was like there was a, a bridge that didn't connect in my brain between actions and consequences. I would climb that, jump that, do that. And not even, seriously, it didn't cross my mind. There was this inv invincibility complex about just, it was there. And so I would just do really dumb stuff. And if, if that could be used for the Lord, that's, that's part of what, ultimately David was anointed by God. This, it had little to do with physiology or the composition of his brain, but I think some of that was there. All the guys that were there, that they, were, they were soldiers, they're, they're kind of older, and, and, and 
They've been doing it a while. They're, they've seen people die. You know what I mean? They've seen the results of fighting a guy like that. And they don't want to end up a mangled piece of hamburger at the, at the feet of Goliath the giant. David rolls up. He's, none of that even crosses his mind. Here's all David knows. He walks up to the battle line, and he hears this guy talking smack to the God of Israel. He doesn't even know anything else. Not going to think about anything else. I'm not going to think about consequences. Up out of him comes instantly. Hold on. Who are you? Let me let you know something. You can come at me with sword and spear, but I'm coming against you with the name of the Lord. And, and today I'm going to feed you to the buzzards, Holmes. <laughs> How does the story end? It ends up with Goliath's head in David's hand. I need you young men to rise up. I need you young men to rise up, and I need you to look forward with anticipation to the day when you're going to be in the father role, because I need you to understand, church, those of you that are fathers, those of you that have been doing this a while, your, your, your fatherly responsibility is not limited to biology. There are many teachers, we don't have a lot of fathers. We need fathers to step up, spiritual fathers, because what we're hoping to happen is to be able to send a bunch of these young men fired up. And with a bunch of passion for Jesus to the front line, start taking the devil's strongholds down, freeing people that have been enslaved by his lies in those strongholds. Then we send them back to the older ones to train and then send them out. And if we can keep on doing that, we see the kingdom grow and we see the enemy lose. But we need every level firing on all cylinders. We need everybody doing what it is they're supposed to do and loving each other and regarding each other with respect, cherishing each other being thankful that they're in the place in their life that they are. Amen? Amen. 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 It takes humility to do that. It's going to take the love of God to do this mission. <clears throat> if this whole thing is working right, we should have young men and women fighting on the front lines, and they're doing the work of the ministry. And like I said, we're freeing people that have been enslaved by his lies. And, and then... As we free them, as we let them know the gospel, we send them to be disciplined and trained, and then they can join the battle. And we should have a battalion of more mature saints, fathers and mothers who fought and endured, who know how to encourage the young ones on the front lines and how to train the new ones just coming to understand the beautiful good news of the gospel. And notice what is required of those in that father position, those in that older, more mature position. It can seem perhaps <clears throat> not enough to be qualified as a leader. Twice it's said to the fathers. Here's what, here, here's what he says. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. He says it twice. It's not, what are you talking, all, all, they, all they've accomplished is they know him. That could seem maybe not enough, but the reality is it's the only qualification that matters. To know King Jesus, I believe, and that's all that is asked of them. And that's, that's all that is pointed out is that you, you know the one who's been from the beginning. You know King Jesus. You have a real, authentic relationship with him. That is what qualifies you to encourage and rally the young men, to discipline, teach, and train the children. You got to know him. Why is that? I believe it's because to know him is to love him. You cannot know him without loving him. You cannot know this God. You cannot encounter his grace. You cannot come upon his mercy and the love that he showered on us through Christ. You cannot know him and not love him. And that seems to be what this whole thing is about. It all comes back to loving him. 
Obedience flows out of that. It's not, it's not, look, if you're struggling to obey, if you're struggling with sin, if you are, if you're tied down and, and you're, you're discouraged, yeah, you know what? Stop sinning, but focus less on that. Do you love him? Do you love him? If you love him, you'll have the power by God's grace to defeat sin in your life. Amen. Glory be to God. I'm grateful for these verses. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, if it were not for your word, I would would just have no place to start. I would not know how to interpret this life. My perspective would be so skewed. I'm thankful, Lord, that because of your word, I understand. I understand that you loved me first. I understand that Any love I have for you is a response to how good you've been to me. Lord, help me to obey you out of gratitude. Let it not be a begrudging thing. Let me not wish for something different and only obey you because I fear you. Lord, I want to obey you because I love you. I want to obey you because I trust you. Lord, I pray that for this church. I pray that for every person within the sound of my voice, God. Maybe they're obeying now, but it's not out of love. It's not out of trust. God, I ask that you would, by your spirit and by your word, change that in their heart. Lord, help them to see this like you do. Father, help us to work together. Help us to deeply value each other. Help us, Lord, to see differences of opinion, differences of of philosophy and, and the way that we go about doing things, different giftings within this body. Let us see these things as wonderful and valuable. Please let let us not be foolish. Lord, guard us from the foolishness that tries to come and bring separation and disunity. Lord, let us value the different parts and pieces that God has brought together to build this army that we can accomplish a mission. Lord, let the young revere and cherish the old. Lord, and let the older, the fathers among us, those that have been doing this a long time, Lord, let them them anxiously await the opportunity to speak into the life of the younger. And Lord, as that's operating correctly, I thank you that you're glorified and your work and your kingdom is built. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for letting us be a part of this. We all realize we're not worthy. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.